Well, this evening we are about to travel back to the days of Moses and Israel and the uh, Exodus. So if you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to turn to Exodus chapter 19. We have come to the point in our series in the book of Exodus where Israel has not only uh, experienced uh, their witnessing of the Lord's bringing the ten plagues upon Pharaoh and Egypt, but they have been set free from Egypt. They have gone through a parted Red Sea and have been wandering in the wilderness, and the Lord has provided for them. And now they are at Mount Sinai. They are about to meet with the Lord God, and He is going to speak to them specifically in the next chapter in Exodus 20, giving to them His great ten words, the Ten Commandments. And so this morning we look at a text that reminds us that our God is great, that our God is holy, and that we must have a mediator to come to Him. You may have noticed there was a theme in the hymns that we sang this evening. They were, some of them, a bit unfamiliar to us. The tunes may have been, but the the actual hymns themselves are not common ones that we sing. Thank you, Jason and Gladys, for leading us through that. But I wanted to set for us a tone of thinking about the Lord our God as one that we must prepare to come into His presence. And so if you please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Exodus chapter 19, beginning at verse 16, we will read through the end of the chapter. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up bringing Aaron with you. Do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them, Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray that the Lord would add his blessing to it. 
O Lord our God, we ask this evening that you would open your word to us, that your word would be a comfort and a stay for us, that it would remind us of who you are, of your great and mighty power, of your sovereignty, that we might, O Lord, take comfort from that, to know that you are in control. We live in a day and an age in which it seems that everything is spinning out of control. But that is a lie. You are sovereign. Your arm is not shortened. Your hand is not weak. Lord, we pray that you would remind us of how you care for us and the blessings that you bring to us. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. There are times when we get caught thinking ahead of where we are. We lose track of what's happening in the moment because we're so busy planning for something that's going to happen in the future. We assume that it is true and about to happen even when it is not a present reality. You might think about young people who have just gotten married and are planning to buy their first house, going and looking at homes and, and looking at floor plans, and they don't yet have a job. They don't yet know which neighborhood they will live in, but they're so excited to take that next step that they are focused upon it. Perhaps in a more mundane way, we see this all the time with various sports teams. You may have a favorite sports team. And you know there is a very big game coming up in two weeks. And your team is, needs to be prepared for that big game. The problem is there's also a game this week. And they forget to be prepared for what's right in front of them. Because they're so busy looking ahead. And that can happen to us in our spiritual lives as well. We neglect what's before us because we're busy planning our future. That is happening to Israel in our text before us this evening. All that Israel has done from Exodus chapter 3 and verse 12 onward has led to this moment. In Exodus chapter 3, God tells Moses that he will redeem his people and will make them free and bring them to the holy mountain so that they might worship him and serve him. Everything up till this point leads to the victory of this moment. The Israelites are ready. And yet I think they miss how significant this moment is in which they find themselves. This is the last prelude to the Ten Commandments. This text reminds us of the context of the Ten Commandments. And unless we understand how, bring, how God brings to us his law, we won't understand his law. We won't understand our need for a savior. And so this evening, I would like us to see three things from this text. First, this text sets forth the nature of God. It reveals God to us. Then second, this text sets forth the nature of men. And this is important because once we see the nature of God 
and the nature of men, we see then our third point, which is the need for a mediator. The first two points drive home the need for the third. The nature of God, the nature of men, and the need for a mediator. Let's begin then first by looking at the nature of God. And we see this in verses 16 through 20. And we begin here in verse 16 to see a fearful God. Now, I don't mean by that that God is afraid. I mean that God strikes awe and fear in those who see him and come to him. He strikes awe in us because of who he is. His nature is such that when we come to God, we are struck with the truth that he is wholly other than we are. That's what the word holy means. It means that God is separate and distinct, set apart from his creation. And so this is seen on Sinai. It is not a coincidence that God comes down to Mount Sinai. It is not a coincidence how he arrives on Sinai. What an experience this is. He comes down in thunder and lightning and a great trumpet sound and smoke surrounds the mountain. The only thing that the men and women of Moses' day could have compared this to would be a massive storm. And even when we talk about storms, there are storms, and then there are storms. Let me just give you one example of this. One of the most devastating storms that I have ever experienced, perhaps that you have ever experienced, was Hurricane Harvey. But I have to tell you, on one respect, Harvey wasn't a very impressive storm. There weren't gigantic winds. There weren't thunders and lightnings. There was just a lot of slow rain. Now, I also lived with my family through Hurricane Katrina. And that was wholly different. In the area of Jackson in which we were living, after Hurricane Katrina, there were gigantic trees that looked like a giant had come and plucked them up by the roots and set them down on their sides. The winds howled and beat against the homes. Rain came in, not down, but sideways. The wind was so powerful. When you saw that storm, you couldn't help but see how weak you were. Even all of the things that we could contrive and build, the shelters, the vehicles, all of this was nothing in the path of this storm. When we think about a mighty storm like that, you should think about the Lord, your God. He is powerful and he is mighty. He is awesome. And when we look upon him, we should fear him with a healthy fear. God is not some kindly, weak uncle who slips us a $20 bill to help us through the week. He's not someone who just helps us out. He's not the big guy upstairs. God is the creator of all things. He is almighty and powerful. And we should never forget that. Sinai helps us not to forget that because God comes down in a fire, Exodus tells us. 
And this fire is a symbol of God throughout the Bible. We see it first in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve have sinned and they are thrust out of the Garden of Eden. Do you remember how God keeps them out of the garden? It's with a flaming fire sword. God taking vengeance on sin in its first manifestation in the garden. God is of purer eyes than to look upon evil. And then again, we have in Genesis chapter 15, fire is a sign of God, not just of one who takes vengeance on sin, but one who makes covenant with his people. It is a sign of God making a covenant with Abraham. And then Moses would be familiar with God as a flaming fire in the bush, as a sign of his holiness, his otherness in Exodus chapter 3. Fire reminds us that God is other than we are, that he is holy and just, and yet that he is true to his promises. Sinai also shows us that God comes down in a cloud. There is a cloud that covers the entirety of the mountain. God veils himself from Israel in the smoke on the whole mountain. Now, can you imagine how much smoke there must be to cover a mountain? What a sight this would be. I think the greatest plume of smoke that I have ever seen was a few months ago, there is an apartment complex north of my house. And it was in the process of being constructed. And it was just framed out with the wood. And somehow, I, I don't know, this complex caught fire. The entirety of the complex. And the smoke rose so that I could see it from miles away. It was a huge plume of smoke. Perhaps you've been in a situation where you've seen that, where even from a distance you can smell the smoke, almost feel the smoke. That's what it must have been like for Israel God had veiled his glory from Israel because he knew that his glory was too much for Israel to bear. God accommodates himself to us. He is a fearful God, but he still wishes to come to us. And so he accommodates himself to us. And of course, the ultimate example of this is our Lord Jesus Christ. God veiling himself in flesh so that we might see him, so that we might hear him, so that we might know him. And Jesus veils himself even in a similar smoke or cloud. You may recall that Jesus is swept up in this at the transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17. When Jesus ascends to heaven, in the, it is in the cloud in Acts chapter 1. And when Jesus returns we are told that he will return in the clouds. This is a sign of who Jesus is. He is the Lord God Almighty. He comes in the clouds. But God is not just a fearful God. Verse 17 reminds us that God is also a desired God. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Even in the midst of all of this, the thunder, the lightning, the smoke, the rumbling, Israel still wants to meet with God. 
That's because we are powerfully drawn to God. We know our need for God inherently. We may try to deny it. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1 that we suppress the truth of the knowledge of God. We're not ignorant of it. We don't get rid of it. We simply try to suppress it or keep it down. And this is the story of all humanity. If you think about it, all of idolatry testifies to the fact that we desire God. We are trying to replace God with other things. Pascal put it this way. He said, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God the Creator, made known through Jesus Christ. The story of our age is everyone trying to fill that vacuum with something other than God. We desire God. Augustine puts it this way. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Do you long for God? Do you desire to be in the presence of God? Do you desire to hear from Him in His Word? To pray to Him? To know Him? To serve Him? He is worthy. He is the only true and living God. God is not just fearful. He's not just desired. But He is also, very importantly for us, a speaking God. And we see this in verses 19 and 20. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. And Moses went up. God comes down to his people. And then God calls his people to him. Why? Because he desires to speak with them, to communicate with them. Our God is the God who speaks. All other so-called gods are idols. Isaiah tells us they are dumb. They cannot speak. The idols of our age, the false religions of our age, are of a God who will not speak to his people, who cannot speak to his people. And so they fumble around in the darkness trying to determine what God is like, what he desires. But not our God. Our God is the God of the Word. He tells us who he is. He tells us what he desires. He longs to have a relationship with us. He announces his presence to us, and then he speaks. And then shortly from now, we will see that he speaks and writes his law. He gives it to us so that we might know his character. And after all, isn't this exactly who Jesus is? He is the Word, John tells us in John chapter 1. He is God speaking to us. The Lord our God speaks to his people. Then the second thing we see after looking at the nature of God, 
is Moses describes for us the nature of men in verses 21 through 23. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord, and to look, and many of them perish. Now, this verse seems like an odd verse. You've heard me explain this to you before, but I, I will again to give you a feeling for it. When you read commentators on the book of Exodus, commentators who in the main don't believe it's inspired, and try to divide it up into three or four or five authors and parts, they'll come to a verse like this and say, obvious this is not authentic. It makes no sense. Why is God telling them not to break through? Didn't we already go through this earlier in the chapter? What's going on here? And it does seem that even Moses understands it that way, because if we look at verse 23, Moses says, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai. You yourself warned us, Lord. What are you talking about almost, we might say? Moses would certainly not be so flippant with God, but we, we almost scratch our heads. Why is God including this? And I think it's because God is speaking to his people, not to the world. And they have been told what to do. And that is necessary. But that is not sufficient. Merely telling God's people what to do is not sufficient. God warns them that they're not ready to come into his presence. And I think often this is a sin that we inhabit, that we covet. And that sin is that we think that we are fit to come to God. That we can come into his presence. And if you think about it, this is all of the flippancy that Christians have with God. How they do not tread lightly before God, but they stomp loudly. They, they treat him as if he's a big buddy. Or of course he'll understand. Or God gets me. I'm sure God will let me do what I need to do. And so, again... We fail to understand that we are presuming upon God. Our consecration makes us presumptuous. We have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we think that means we can live however we want. Because, of course, Jesus covers our sins. So why should I even worry about if I sin? That's covered. That's handled. They desire more to see God than to serve God. Do you notice the distinction here? They want to come into his presence and observe and be blessed. But their thought is not on service. And that leads us to a second thing in verse 22. God says, Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And again here, the commentators just have a field day. Ooh. What is this text saying? Doesn't it know that we don't have the Aaronic priesthood yet? That that doesn't occur for a few chapters? How can the priests be doing anything in Israel? There are no priests yet. They haven't formed the priesthood. And of course they forget that priests don't start with the line of Aaron. We just read about Jethro, the priest of Midian. We see even in the days of Abraham, priests. 
And so what most likely is being referred to here are the heads of households who are interceding for their families. And so I think this is helpful as a, a brief aside for the men in our congregation. If you are the head of your household, that does not mean that you get to snap and things are done for you. What it means is, is that you are the priest of your household. That you are to intercede for your family. That you are to take not just yourself and your own sins, but your wife and your wife's sins and your children and their sins before God. To intercede for them. And what God is saying here is that these priests didn't consecrate themselves. And this is a second sin that I think we manifest. Not only does our consecration make us presumptuous, we don't even think we need consecration. We presume <coughs> our own holiness. You could just imagine the priests, the leaders, saying, well, of course, you know, the mob has to get ready for God coming down, but... I'm the head of household here. I'm the one who leads in prayer. I'm the one who teaches the Bible study. Come on, really? I'm always ready. And that again can be our attitude before a holy God. We believe we can go to God at any time and therefore we don't make any effort to cultivate holiness. And what we really need is both. We need the positional holiness that we have in Christ. And we need the consecrated holiness, that active pursuit of holiness that we get through sanctification. And then there's a third difficulty for men. We see it in verse 23. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, See, or excuse me, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And again, Moses doesn't understand this. Why are we having to tell the people again? You've already told the people, God. And Moses is making the mistake that knowing is obeying. He thinks that because they know the command of God, it will be done. Now, God knows better than Moses. And I dare say that the parent of the average teen or preteen knows better. Because just because your children know they're supposed to do something, can you be certain it'll be done? Or do you find yourself like me asking over and over again, did you do that yet? Did, did you get around to that yet? I, I know, Dad. I know, I know you know. I'm not asking if you know, I'm asking if you did. And it's not just children that are like that, that's, that's you and me. We know we should read our Bibles. Do we? We know we should pray. Do we? We know we should flee from sin. Do we? Do you ever have the experience of while you are sinning, having Bible verses forbidding that sin, come to your mind. You know God's truth. But knowing is not the same as obeying. Obeying follows 
knowing. And that's why God is repeating this again for Moses and the Israelites. You see, we too often want to equate disobedience with a lack of knowledge. If you doubt that, just stop and think for a moment how every problem in the world today, according to our culture, can be solved by better education. Everything. If we just had more education, if we just threw more money at education, then every problem would be solved. Brothers and sisters, that is not a biblical worldview. That is a platonic worldview. Plato said that the reason why people do wrong things is because they are ignorant. Paul tells us, the good that I would do, I do not do. The evil that I would not, that I do. Why? Because there is a struggle within me with sin. It's not just that I need to know more. It's that I need to know God more. I need to serve God more deeply. I need to understand that my obedience is a blessing to me. It brings me closer to God. We must be not just hearers of the word, but doers of it. And if that sounds familiar, it should be because it's from James chapter 1. We must do the word of God. Well, if this is what we are faced with, a fearful and holy God, and a mankind that does not obey, and that falls short of the glory of God, where do we go from there? And we see this in the last two verses, verse 24 and 25 of our text that shows us the need for a mediator. It is a result of the holy God who speaks to us. God knows the sinful nature of our hearts. He knows the sad state of affairs that we are in. Your sin does not surprise God. You don't need to worry about hiding it from God as if somehow that will affect your relationship with Him. God knows your sin before you commit it. He is completely omniscient. But the amazing thing about the God of the Bible is knowing how sinful we are, He wants a relationship with us. And if that doesn't amaze you, I want you to just think about your coworkers and friends and neighbors and even family members. If they knew exactly who you were, your deepest thoughts that you never reveal, the words that you say outside of their presence, the things that you do that they are not aware of, would they want to have a relationship with you? I dare say not. But oh, our God. He knows the depths of our sin beyond what even we know ourselves. And yet he longs to have a relationship with us. And so he takes it upon himself to bridge the gap. <coughs> Look at verse 24. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up bringing Aaron with you. <coughs> But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. And what we see here is a picture of the mediator. God knows 
that the Israelites cannot come into his presence. They can't come to the mountain. So what does God do? He comes to them by a mediator. He tells Moses to come up, and then he tells him to go back to the people. Moses is a prefiguring of our Lord Jesus Christ here. He is the go-between between God and his people. Moses is obedient to this call. God tells him to go back and forth. And the interesting thing is that Moses is obedient in this even though he is fearful. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 21 tells us that he feared exceedingly. And the reason why Moses was afraid was because he knew who God was. He knew the holiness of God. And yet, he's obedient to God's word. This is the culmination of Moses' ministry. He takes the word of God down to the people in the midst of his own fear. We have a better mediator. Our mediator is the Lord Jesus Christ. We are reminded of this in Hebrews chapter 12, which describes this very scene, beginning at verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. Here Hebrews is describing Exodus 19. And you can almost feel the shaking and the fear. As the Israelites say, please don't even speak to us anymore. We can't take it. We're terrified. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stole, stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. This is that same word we saw this morning, Terrified. It's the same word. Moses is shaking with fear. But, Hebrews goes on, You have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Exodus is not a bad covenant. It's just not perfect. God gives us, in his promises, a better mountain, Mount Zion, and a better covenant, sealed with the blood of Jesus Christ, and a better mediator. So often, we think that the land that we can see is more real than the city of God. What you're being told here this evening is that it is not. What is real is Mount Zion, the heavenly kingdom. God says that what we see before us are just pictures of what is to come. All of Exodus 20 is set in the context of a God who wants to meet with us and who has given a mediator. 
That's what we see here in Exodus 19. But this is also a picture of our life. We are unable. We are unworthy. But God bridges the gap. He comes to us in Jesus. Jesus does what we cannot do so that we can come to God. And when we do, God speaks to us. This is our great and mighty Lord. Let's pray.